gift, and that happens to me all the time when I speak. If there happen to be men in the audience, I had a man, he had to be in his 60s, that came up to me at the end because he's heard me, another man, tell, tell my story. And he said to me, he's like, listen, he said, I've never told anybody. He was remarried at this point. His current wife didn't know. He was like, man, I've never told anybody. He said, but I went through that too in my first marriage. And I'm just like looking at this guy like, holy cow, <laughs> you know? And so can you imagine you've just been holding on to this for so, for so long? Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy, and thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. With me today is Hampton Conway III. He is the executive director of the Movement Ministries. Did you know men are victims of domestic violence as well? And Hampton Conway III is going to tell us about his story and his ministry and how people can get the help they need. Welcome, Hampton. Welcome to the show, and we're going to be talking about domestic violence. So let's start with your story. I was married previously for 14 years, very early in the marriage. Started seeing some things and experiencing some things that I didn't necessarily know how to deal with or understand. Kind of what's interesting about that is growing up as a kid, I never had a conversation about domestic violence. I didn't see it. My parents didn't really argue in front of us as kids. It's not like today where you have social media and you see things happening and you have all these movements like why I stayed movement and all these different things because of social media now. But growing up, I never had that conversation, didn't have any exposure to it. So when it started happening to me, I internalized it. I didn't know how to deal with it. I thought, okay, I must be doing something really wrong. Let me try to love her more. Let me be a better man. Ultimately, things just continue to get worse. I experienced physical violence, but that actually wasn't as bad and didn't leave the same kind of scars that the emotional and verbal and psychological abuse did. It went on for some time and periodically we had phases where she promised to get help or do things to change. And so I kind of held on to that hope, but ultimately it it didn't change. It, It just really got worse until I ended up really serious anxiety and depression and just got into a really dark, dark place to where I finally just had to make a decision because it was such a dark place that honestly, the only two things that I was primarily thinking about was either hurting myself or hurting her. I realized neither one of those options were good. And I finally got enough motivation to kind of make my escape, but it was something I dealt with alone kind of in secret. Nobody knew about for the longest time. And that's the other part too, is the isolation that comes along with domestic abuse. And abusers definitely want to isolate you. So you don't have those bonds and and those other resources to support you. And, and, you know, they want to be able to continue to exert that control and and manipulation and so on and so forth. So just a smidgen of my story. Another part of it was just in dealing with the court system to get custody of my children. I ultimately did get custody of all my children, but it was not easy at all. I mean, I really felt like because I was a man, it was definitely an uphill battle. And I actually struggled to get the treatment that I thought I deserved from the police, from judges, and even from Child Protective Services. Like, I felt like they all really just gave me a hard time. But eventually it worked out. I work with women who have been abused, and it's so interesting that it's the same story. But we so often don't think of it 
with men. How have you dealt with that aspect of it? You know, as a man, you think about in my community and in my culture growing up, the barbershop was the place to be, you know. <laughs> you didn't just go to the barbershop for a haircut. You know, that was where men talked about everything. Well, no, they don't talk about everything. They we're not talking about the things that really make us vulnerable or ashamed to say. And nobody's sitting in the barbershop saying, man, let me tell you how my woman went upside my head last night. That's not happening. And definitely felt that way and felt like, you know, I got to be a man and I got to suck it up and all those things that you learn of what a man is supposed to be. And unfortunately, that definitely contributed to me just kind of holding these things in for such a long time. One thing you said earlier about why don't they just leave, that is something, whether it's men or women, that is so misunderstood. People that, like you said, you had never experienced it, so they don't know what goes on. They don't know the threats, I'm going to take your children, all those kind of things. And I thought was really interesting is when it first started happening, you're like, what have I done? What am I not good at? You totally looked inside, and that's so often what happens with victims. Absolutely. Very common. And, and you're right. There's a lot of commonalities across the board, right? But like you said, a lot of the focus is on women. But I mean, elder abuse is a ridiculously huge issue. Yes, it is. Um, of course, there's child abuse. Even teen dating violence is getting off the charts. So, I mean, it's it's the LGBTQ community. Same-sex couples are having this issue. And so there's another organization that I work with called uh, Safe Stop Abuse for Everyone. And it really focused on trying to bring to light all the different groups that are being affected by this and trying to provide resources for all those groups. You know, when it comes to legislation and, and resources, those kind of things, usually it's kind of like, uh, what's that saying? Squeaky wheel. Uh, yes, 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 yes. The catch-22 because men aren't speaking out. And one of the reasons men aren't speaking out because they don't see the help. They don't see where the resources are. And so they're not speaking up. There's not as many statistics to validate or justify the necessary resources that are needed. And can't get the resources. So when men do speak out or try to get help, they don't have resources. But because they don't have resources or can't find the resources, they don't speak up. So now we don't have the stats to take to lobby for. You know, so it's just like this vicious cycle. And I'm trying to help break that and bring more attention to all, not just men, but other groups that that really needs support in this area. You are really brave for coming forward. And when I saw your press release, I emailed back right away because I thought not enough people are talking about this. And there's such misunderstanding. And like you said, through the courts with the police, it's so easy for people to go, how could this happen? But they don't understand the emotional abuse that goes with it. And you are raising 10 kids, did I hear? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> my, my, my ex, that's another interesting factor. My ex-wife and I had 10 children. Wow. And so you look at that and here, you know, you're experiencing something that you don't even know what to call it. And then you've got these kids and you're trying to be an example. And there's just so many things, so many elements that it must have just been so confusing for you. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to it because, you know, the kids ended up enduring abuse themselves. I honestly don't know how to articulate how I felt knowing as a father, one of my primary jobs is to protect my children. But yet one of the people I have to protect my children from is their mother. And I really don't know how to articulate yeah. like the inner conflict and turmoil that comes along with that. 
with that situation. But fortunately, like I said, I was able to finally get them out of the situation. We all got into counseling. We all been in therapy and worked through that. They're doing very well. The other part about domestic violence, the organization, I say we focus on supporting victims and survivors. Because even once you're out of the situation, there's still some healing and some things that need to take place to really help people get, get through that. It is. And the fact that you got them into counseling, you were able to get out of the situation. A lot of children grow up that way. They don't get the help. It's not recognized. And so all of a sudden they're adults and they don't know that that's not normal. Right there. You hit the nail on the head. Things become normalized, right? So if you grow up and you see mommy and daddy or your two adults interacting in this particular way, and then they're turning around and saying, you know, I love you, right? <laughs> this is this is how you define and you shape what love looks like. So now when you're in a relationship and, and somebody cusses you out or somebody does something that makes you feel a certain way, you know on the inside it doesn't feel right, but everything you learn from the learned behaviors of growing up in that situation tells you, hey, but this is normal. Right. This, this, is, this is just how it is. It's our comfort zone, too. So mm-hmm. it's like you may not really like it, but it's what you know. There you go. Yep. So I think about what you went through coming from a very kind of normal upbringing and walking into this. When I saw you have these other groups, too, there's a sister one and a few others on your press release. But I thought, I love that you're reaching all areas. It's like some people are adults all of a sudden realizing it. Some people are kids in the middle of it. And then there's the perpetrator who was most likely a victim. Absolutely. Yep. You're hitting it dead on and it's affecting so many different people. And like you alluded to, a lot of people are in abusive situations and don't recognize them as such. And they may say, well, he's not hitting me. She's not hitting me. But yet you've got an anxiety issue. You're walking on eggshells because you're afraid to just make a normal human mistake around that person. There's so many other things that people have to recognize that this is not okay. How often have we heard people say, Oh, man, I got to walk on eggshells. What can you give us some of the signs somebody's listening and maybe they think they might be in an abusive relationship, but they've kind of just denied it, pushed it back, thought I'll be a better person. What are some signs first? And then we'll get into some tactics. One of the things in my own personal example, and this is common, right? So when someone stops participating in activities that they love, that they've always participated in. So, you know, withdrawing from community, withdrawing from family, withdrawing from society, that's a huge sign. My own mother, actually, she apologized to me, you know, when I finally opened up about everything that was going on. She's like, I'm so sorry, you know, I didn't know, I didn't realize. And I said, how would you? You didn't know what to look for. And that was one of the things. They didn't know that when I stopped going to church and, and when I stopped singing in the choir and I stopped playing in an adult soccer league and they just figure, oh, he's busy, his job, the kids, people just assume it's all these other things. And honestly, much of that was because, again, the abuser wants to isolate you. And so definitely wasn't a situation where I felt like I felt like I had to be home. I felt like I didn't have the freedom to, to participate in, in, and do these other things. And so that's one definite sign. Another thing is just recognizing, I remember I was doing a talk for another group. It was getting late. The the, the talk went long because people kept asking questions. And I could see a woman in the class getting very antsy. She she started asking some questions that kind of piqued my interest. And so I asked her, I said, I realized she was in a relationship. And I started asking her some questions. And I realized, I said, are you nervous about the fact that this class is running long? Like, 
do you have somewhere to be? Are you? She's like, yeah. He keeps texting me saying, am I on my way home? And, and so I started walking her through that, like, well, how often does this happen? Does this happen every time you go out? And I was able to kind of walk her through it and realize this was a pattern that wow. every time she went, and she's in school, she's in class, right? But he had her so worked up and so anxious about not being home at a certain time, about making sure she was where she, she was supposed to be and these different things. So by the, by the end of the conversation, she realized, oh, my God, I'm in right. a relationship. You know what I mean? So it's so many different different things going on and on. That's what I've discovered is often people are so depressed and they've isolated themselves, but they still think it's them. They still think, oh, I must be doing something or I'm whatever they've been brainwashed to believe. So I love it that you saw that and you were able to talk her through it. Now, we know as family members, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you can point it out, but anything we do could add to the abuse. What would you say to that? Oh, gosh, yes. So there definitely is. So this is one of the things that I appreciate about the domestic violence hotline is that it's not just for people that are actually in the situation. They will give you tips if you know somebody who's in the situation. That's and, so great. Right. So that's 800-799-SAFE. And I'm saying that to, your, to the, answer your question that there are definitely as well-meaning and well-intentioned as we can be when we see somebody, a friend, a loved one in that situation. There are definitely certain strategies that can help or hurt the situation. You know, one of the worst things you want to do is go confront the abuser. Right. And yet, isn't you know, isn't that what family members want to do? And that's it's like what they want to do. Yeah, and that makes it worse. So that's one. What's another? Understand that the person that's in that relationship, they love their abuser. Wow. Yeah. Right. You have to understand that, despite the fact that this person is treating them poorly, despite that the, your your family member may be depressed and upset and in pain, they love this person. So you have to be very careful what you say. You have to choose your words carefully because, believe it or not, if you attack, even just with your words, the other person, that's going to shut the, the person in the situation down. Right. They go into defensive mode, and now they've Absolutely. got to stick up for them instead of say what's happening to themselves. That puts family members in really a difficult situation. But I think for the, for people to hear that, that there are things you can do, but the big things are to not go confront that person. And also, I love what you said about remember they love them, because the thing with abuse is it doesn't always start that way. Absolutely not. Yeah. The victim is waiting for that person to come back. They're like, no, I know they're in there, right? Yep. Yep. They're hoping and praying for change. Right. And especially if you come from a background where you don't believe in divorce and you do want to try to work things out. That happened for me. Part of the reason why I stayed was because of my faith and, and my understanding at the time of what the church had to say about divorce. I've since kind of changed my position. I had a better understanding of what I think God wants from me. And that's for me to be happy and content and joyful and not live in a state of sadness and depression and anxiety. When I was in it, that was a major thing. Like, okay, well, divorce is an option. So what else do I do? You know, right. So what did you do? So I was fortunate, and this is another motivation of why I have my organization, because I was fortunate enough to have somewhere to go when I finally got to the point of really making the decision to go. 
there had been times where I had left for maybe a day or two days or three days max, stayed in the hotel, stayed in the car. I was a principal, so I had the keys, the alarm code to my building. I was sleeping in my, my office oh. at the school. I was sleeping in the teacher's lounge because they had a better couch than I had in my office. <laughs> you know, I was sleeping in the teacher's lounge and get up early enough and had a change of clothes so my staff would know that I had spent the night there. I was in Pittsburgh at the time. My parents were here in Maryland. Two things were crucial to me. I knew if I left, I still wanted to be able to provide for the kids. So I couldn't just leave and not have a job. And two, I needed somewhere to go that, that would take me in permanently. There was no such thing as, in the area I was in as, as shelters for men. None of the women's shelters were taking men. Wow, I never even thought of that. And even if you had male children over a certain age, they wouldn't even take them. So, you know, that was an issue. But fortunately, like I was saying, I had had family back here, back home in Maryland, that I was able to have a place to come. And I was able to acquire a job before I even left. So I left knowing I had a job and I could still send money back and take care of the family. And unfortunately, the hardest part was I had to leave the kids. Yeah. I couldn't grab legally. I couldn't take the kids and flee. Right. I had to leave, I had to leave myself, get help for myself, get healing for myself. And then I immediately started to fight that, that legal battle uh, for the children. But a lot of people don't have family to run to. They, they can't just acquire a job just like that somewhere else. And so there's so many other factors, like you said, to to why people can't just up and leave. And so that's why, as far as the organizations, we want to try to help fill that gap. It's a hard transition regardless. But we can make it, if we can make it less hard. If somebody's going through this now, I mean, imagine if you would have had someone to call. For sure. That was For like, sure. okay, this is what's going to happen next. Even the part about leaving the kids, people don't understand that. But there are certain mm-hmm. legal things. And if you end up in jail, guess who can't support their kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, especially knowing a lot of attention wasn't on me. They were catching it even more. Oh, yeah. So what is the name of your organization and how can we find you? Movement Ministries. And our website is makemoves.org. On there, there's contact information and there's even a form that you can submit. If you have a question, just want to get in touch. If I don't have the answer or the resource, I'll point you to it. We are in the process of continuing to build our resource database and partnerships. Don't hesitate just because you're, if you're not in Maryland, I'm in Maryland, just because you're not in Maryland doesn't mean we can't help you. And like I said, if I don't have access to it, I will track it down. That's how serious I am about wanting people to really get the help they need. So somebody listening has been through what you've been through and they want to do something. How do they, What what's their next step? They get in touch I, with you? Yeah, I mean, I can guide people in because I think that that's really going to come down to a person because some people, some people are great speakers. Some people are just uh, great behind the scenes workers. Um, you know, so I think really the help that somebody that has gone through this can provide depends on their own kind of passion and, and talent. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think that people can use, if you're passionate about helping others, using your voice to speak up. Do you know of any podcasts that people are doing that cover this subject? I do, actually. Um, there's a woman that I work with. She has a podcast called The Lion is Queen. It's about moving on past life after divorce. My organization, actually, gonna be, we're going to be starting a podcast in the next month or so. That's awesome. Um, that's what I was getting at, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's something people have been 
it's funny. I appreciate the confirmation because I've been really, you know how it is, insecurities and fears. Whenever you get out of your comfort zone, you've got that, I'm going to do this. And it's like, who are you to think you could? Exactly. But, you know, it's so important. And again, that's why I, the minute I saw your stuff, I reached out because I feel like there's so many men. And for men, it's it's different. It's the same, but it's different in the way a woman, when they reach out, they get more sympathy and they get more help. When a man reaches out, people don't know what to do with them. Having a podcast, saying the words and letting people know, because I'm sure there are so many people that are one, still in the situation, two, are out, but have never been able to talk about it. Yes. Yes. And that happens to me all the time when I speak. If there happen to be men in the audience, I had a man, he had to be in his 60s, that came up to me at the end because he's heard me, another man, tell, tell my story. And he said to me, he's like, listen, he said, I've never told anybody. He was remarried at this point. His current wife didn't know. He was like, man, I've never told anybody. He said, but I went through that too in my first marriage. And I'm just like looking at this guy like, holy cow. <laughs> you know, and so can you imagine you've just been holding on to this? For so so long. So, yeah, I think that's what and that's what I've learned Mm -hmm. is for men, even social media, like me posting on social media and just like posting graphics, talking about it or saying certain things like men aren't responding to that. But when I when they hear me or see me. Interesting. Then I get response. It may not be a public response, but they will pull me aside. They will send me a message. That's why it's so important, I think, for them to physically hear and see other men telling their story. I work with people in recovery, and the very first thing is for them to tell their story. And a lot of times they have to tell some pretty awful stuff they did while they were on drugs. But the story is so important. And saying the words is where the healing really begins to come in. But I feel like the more people have a place and a platform to tell their story, then it's not going to be such a big hush-hush thing and a shame thing. And we all have heard of Brene Brown and we're trying to fight shame. And so what a better time to be coming out with all of this. Also, I love it that you were a principal. Sometimes people that have never been abused, they think it happens to a certain category of people, but it it happens across the board. Doctors, lawyers, whatever your occupation, your pay grade, that doesn't matter when it comes to abuse. You are absolutely right. When I first separated, I had a hard time finding resources for myself. I wanted to find a support group. And so I was in therapy. Let me find a support. And I'm in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. So I'm thinking, there's got to be this melting pot, this area, there's got to be something. So I searched and searched and searched for a support group for men who are victims or survivors of domestic Could not find one. I mean, I looked in all, I contacted all kinds of organizations and even the, the meetup app and, and all these different things. You could find meetup groups for everything under the sun. Goldfish you know? owners. Exactly. Right. Twinkie, twinkie lovers. You know, <laughs> like, which I'm a Twinkie lover. but it, Oh, it must have broke your heart when we thought they went out of business a few years ago. It did break my heart. And I, <laughs> I threw a party when they came back. <laughs> I love that. You couldn't find a group anywhere. Wow. Couldn't find a group anywhere. And so that was kind of at that time in my mind, I was like, well, if I can't find one. I guess I'm going to have to start one. And so since then, I have, there are some, now that I've gotten into this work, I've been able to find, but I mean, it's few and far between, Mm -hmm. but one of the trainings I went to, so I, you know, had decided to go get trained myself 
to be an advocate and educate people on domestic violence. One of the first trainings I went to, and one of the common resources that you will see in domestic violence circles when people educate and advocate is the Duluth Power and Control Wheel. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so check this out. I'm a man. I'm at this session trying to learn about how to advocate for people and get educate people around domestic violence. And they're reading the Duluth Power and Control Wheel. Here's the language. Using coercion and threats. Making or, and or carrying out threats to do something to hurt her. Threatening to leave her. Mm -hmm. Commit he commits the suicide to report her, right? Using intimidation is another category. Making her afraid by looks. At, so we're going through this whole wheel, <laughs> and the whole wheel is gender bias, right? Yes. It's, it's exclusive, and I'm sitting there. Now, mind you, I do agree. All of the, the different categories do apply to me on the flip side right. and apply to my situation. So I understand the power and control aspect of domestic violence. But can you imagine how I felt sitting there as a man having gone through this and even the tool that is being used to educate people is excluding me? Wow. Wow. I was just looking at that the other day because um, it's in my file because of another interview I did. And that never occurred to me until you said that right now. And so some people may look at that and not and not really think of that. Or, but I, and I think it's more personal, obviously, because, again, I, I was fresh out of it. Sure. And I'm looking at this. And so now there are some other wheels people have adapted and have changed the language to be more inclusive. But this is still primarily used with that language in, in many circles that I, that I go to. And that's just another example of how we've got to continue to change the narrative, continue to be more inclusive and in understanding of how this is affecting so many people all across the board. That is so true. And I'm so glad you're speaking up. Now you get that podcast going and you get back with me and we will do an update of where you are and who you've interviewed for your podcasts. And maybe you'll have some more stories as well. But I really think you're very brave for stepping up and stepping out because I think a lot of people are going to be like, finally, somebody gets it. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to use your platform to have this conversation. Well, thank you. And we will do this again. Movement Ministries and our website is makemoves.org. Not only did Hampton remind us that men are also victims of domestic violence, but there is a domestic violence hotline you can call 800-799-SAFE. That's 7233, 1-800-799-SAFE. They also have a webpage called thehotline.org, but they do have a security alert where they give you the phone number to call or you can chat live. They do have a big red X on the page, so... At any time, if you feel someone's watching you, you can X out of it. Again, the 800 number is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 7233. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.